0: Welcome. You are listening to the Upper Room Podcast. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit URFellowship.com. How's everyone doing today? Good. Doing pretty good. Thanks for asking. Appreciate that. Good to see you all. Okay. Good to see you. Good to see you. I forgot my glasses today, so I'm going to be squinting through this whole sermon today. Uh, So we're talking about, we're in the sermon series that's going to go on for quite a while, but we're talking about the core values of the upper room. And the idea is, the the truth is that the invitation of Jesus to all of us is to become disciples of his, to become disciples citizens of the kingdom of God here on earth, and to live the values of the kingdom of God. And today we're going to continue to talk about our first value, and that is treasuring God's presence, treasuring his presence. And um, as we're going to continue to see, everything about the kingdom really goes against what we would otherwise think is normal, which means as kingdom people, we're called to be abnormal. So some of us have no problem with that. But we're called to be peculiar people in all the right ways, the same ways that Jesus was peculiar. And uh, if you don't know, I'm one of those kind of uh, boring eggheads who like to spend time reading about the early church and other stuff like that that nobody really cares about. And once in a while, I'll let my inner nerd out. And I appreciate, thank you, I appreciate that you all put up with that. Um, That's going to happen for a bit today. Some people like my inner nerd, apparently. The first part of this sermon is going to be kind of me nerding out. And today it'll be even more difficult because you're not even going to know why I'm telling you what I'm telling you for a while, all right? But I can almost guarantee that you'll see why, why I'm talking about this if you just hang with me, all right? So here we go. Um, the, the early church wrestled with a lot of theological and philosophical problems. One of the major problems they wrestled with was how Jesus could be Fully God and fully human. Uh, the Bible says Jesus is fully God. The Bible says Jesus is fully human. And they wrestled with how do you put that together? Now, you might think that that wouldn't be that difficult. Uh, John just tells us that the, the, the Word, which was God, was made flesh and made his dwelling among us. So God was made flesh. What's, what's difficult about that? God's all powerful. He can do whatever he wants. He decided to be God in a new way as a man, Jesus. What's the problem? Well, the early church had a big problem with this, not in believing it, but in trying to make sense out of all of it. And part of the problem was that uh, there was a very highly esteemed philosophical tradition that went back actually before Plato. Okay? It's now called the negative theology. It's a study of what God is not, rather than what he is. Uh, this tradition was started with the philosophers, and it became the dominant way of thinking about God in the ancient world. And in this tradition, what they did is they sort of just thought their way into the definition of God. And the basic premise of negative theology is that God is so far beyond human understanding that the, the only hope we have of getting close to the nature of God is to list what God definitely is not. Okay, And the way they arrived at this definition of God was, to, uh, was by contrasting God with human beings and with the world. So if something defined humanity or the world, they would negate that from the definition of God. So for example, they saw that time is a constant part of the the human experience. So they said, well then, God must be above time, completely timeless. And his world's always changing, and humans are always changing. And so they posited that God, every respect, not just his character as essence, but in every respect, God doesn't change. And they came to view passion and suffering as a sign of weakness, and so they defined God as being above emotion, above passion, and above all suffering. The, the, the people in the world changes, and so God must be immutable, meaning he doesn't change. And these ideas define what became the normal view of God. And what you need to know is that the early church, when this whole thing was getting launched, some, some intellectuals were converted into the, the Christian movement. And uh, some of them brought this normal view of God with them. And to a large degree, many folks at the time accepted this normal view of God as being altogether timeless, altogether unchanging, altogether passionless, above emotion and suffering. And if you accept that view of God, you have a hard time making sense out of Jesus. You may have a hard time making sense out of Jesus being fully God and fully human. Because to say Jesus is fully God and fully human with that normal definition of God, means Jesus is both fully timeless, and yet as a human, he was fully temporal. And and Jesus says God is beyond change, completely changeless, immutable, and yet God is very changing because he became flesh. And God is both above passion and suffering, and yet was fully involved in our passion and suffering. And how do you put these two things together? It was like they're trying to pack a timeless, changeless, passionless definition of God into the person of Jesus Christ. And it just didn't fit very well. It's like trying to explain how some substance could be both fully and completely gold and fully and completely silver. Like not partly gold or partly silver, not a mixture of the two, but both fully at the same time. What you know very well to be silver is to not be gold, and to be gold is to not be silver. It's really quite a pickle. And they wrestled with this, and they talked about it, and they debated it. And they finally came up with what was considered the orthodox solution at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And the solution is to say that Jesus is fully God and fully human, and these two natures and substances relating together in such a way... Here's a quote. They are... Yeah. Unconfusedly, interchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather... The property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one substance. I think that clears it up. (laughs) (laughs) Any questions? I mean, there's a lot of words there that don't really say much of anything at all. It doesn't help us understand how Jesus is fully God and fully human. But given how they kind of set up the problem, I don't think they could do any better than that. Here's the big problem. They started with what they thought they knew about God, their normal definition of God, and then they tried to fit Jesus into it. They assumed they knew who God is and what God is like ahead of time, and then discovered that it's very hard to reconcile that view of God with the person of Jesus Christ. And I said all this to say, I think we, in various ways, do this too. Some of us without knowing it. We assume a normal view of God that we inherited from the culture. And it feels normal to us. It's, it's commonsensical to us. And then we try to fit Jesus into it. Trouble is that our normal view of God is inherited from a fallen culture, and, um, which is why many Christians have, I'll say it this way, profoundly sub-Christian views of God. They may have the right creed. They may have the, what they think is the right theology. Maybe they even can recite the Chalcedonian Creed. But when it comes to how they actually picture God in their head, It's very sub-Christian because of trying to fit Jesus into what they already think they know about God rather than the other way around. The same thing can be said about the kingdom or about Christian living. We tend to assume we know what the kingdom is and we know what Christian living is, and then we try to fit the teachings of Jesus into our normal definition. That's why many Christians don't differ very much at all from the culture because they basically assume the the normality of culture and then fit Jesus into it. So all the studies done on this suggest that the majority of American Christians differ very little from non-Christians. That's because they're absorbing the normal and then fitting Jesus in as an addition. We just do what other normal people do, but we do it in Jesus' name. So we seek after comfort and wealth and security and power, And because we want those things, it seems normal to assume that one of God's main interests is to provide us with comfort, wealth, security, and power. Despite the fact that Jesus warned against seeking after comfort, wealth, security, and power. All of this is because we tend to start our thinking about God and about the kingdom with our normal ideas about how things work. And then we try to fit Jesus and his teachings into it, rather than the other way around. So just as with the Council of Chalcedon, we end up trying to mix together gold and silver. And it just doesn't work. And I want to submit to you that rather than starting with our normal view of God and our normal view of Christian living, and then trying to fit Jesus into it, we ought to start all of our thinking from beginning to end with Jesus Christ, and then readjust our normal accordingly. We need to start with Jesus' teaching and then... Jettison everything that we might have considered normal, but doesn't agree with what we find to be true in the person of Jesus Christ. I think during this Values in the Kingdom series, it would be actually very beneficial to kind of pretend like we don't know anything about what it means to be a Christian, and then start fresh and look at Jesus and let him tell us who God is and what the kingdom is, and let him tell us what, it's, what it is to walk in his ways, to value what he values, to be Christ-like. And everything that we would think would be normal, that doesn't conform to that, we need to get rid of it. And when we do that, when we start with Jesus Christ and stay focused on him, we will discover that there's, there's little that's normal about God. There's, there's very little that's normal about being a disciple of Jesus. In fact, when Jesus is at the center of our definition of God, and the center of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, almost everything we would think would would be normal is reversed. And that's what so many of our values are about. So we learn as we look at Jesus that God is powerful, right? That's normal. But this powerful God reveals his power through weakness of the cross. How normal is that? And God's victorious, yes, but he accomplishes his victory by being defeated or looking like he's defeated at Calvary. That isn't normal. God is wise, but he reveals his wisdom through the foolishness of the cross. God's supremacy over all things is revealed in the the humility of a sacrificial death. God's holiness was revealed not in the way the Pharisees did it. That wasn't true holiness. God's holiness is revealed in the way that he hangs out and accepts and even parties with the worst of sinners. When our eyes are fixed on Jesus, everything we would think would be normal about God tends to be reversed. And if we start all of our thinking about God with the fact that God became a man in Jesus Christ, we no longer have any problem of trying to mix gold and silver together. We no longer have a problem of trying to pack a timeless, changeless, passionless being into a temporal, changing, suffering human. If we start with Jesus Christ and stay focused on Jesus, you simply accept at the start that this is what God looks like. When God becomes a human, he's not becoming something different to himself. But actually, when God becomes a human in the person of Jesus Christ, he's finally fully expressing what he's really like, what his character really is. Like, you see glimpses of the true character of God in the Old Testament, but in the person of Jesus Christ, you see the essence of of who God is. Jesus said in John 14, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. When we see him, when our eyes are focused on Jesus Christ, we see who God is. And he's not some passionless, all-controlling, metaphysical principle. He's a personal God, whose very essence is love. A love that's defined by the fact that he takes upon himself our humanity. He takes upon himself our sin, and he takes upon himself our judgment in order to reconcile us to himself. That's what God's really like. But you only get there if you start with Jesus and end with Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And our call as Jesus followers is very simple and very challenging. It is to become a disciple of Jesus. It's to love like him. It's to, it's to live like him. It's to value what he values. It's to serve like him. And when we do, we'll discover that everything that may have felt normal in our lives starts to get turned upside down. It starts to get reversed. And this is what we're called to do. We're called to be aliens. We're called to be foreigners. We're called to be strangers on this earth. We follow a different king. We're part of a different kingdom with different values. We're called to be weird and noticeably so. In fact, the, the passion of, of our existence, the reason why we exist, is to seek first the kingdom of God, to make that the highest priority of our life, to make living out God's values the passion of our existence. And so the question we've got to live in, because this, this isn't one of those kind of questions that you can kind of settle once and for all, and then like, be done with it, but the question we've got to live in is, are we in fact fitting Jesus in living the kingdom into our normal? Or are we letting God transform our normal into Jesus in the kingdom? Now, that can kind of be difficult to get our heads around, sure. But honestly, understanding isn't the most difficult part of this. The the really hard part is living it. Um, We like to spend so much time just kind of theologizing about it, it helps us steer clear of actually doing it. So, What I want to do with the rest of our time is offer a couple disciplines, okay, which I think help us train for valuing the presence of God. All the spiritual disciplines in church history, I think, are good. uh, Some more than others for different people because we're all individuals. But all of them are beneficial to living in the kingdom. And if you're not aware of the spiritual disciplines, um, I would encourage you to read a book like Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline, or Dallas Willard's book, The Spirit of Disciplines. Um, Spirit of Disciplines is more on the the why behind the spiritual disciplines. Uh, Celebration of Discipline is more a how-to manual for the spiritual practices. So for the rest of our time together, I'm going to talk about two that I think are particularly important on this value specifically, the value of treasuring the presence of God. The first one's the same one I talked about last week. I'm talking about it again because I think it's so... Important. It is the discipline of staying aware of the Spirit of God. It is sometimes called practicing the presence of God. I believe that this is the most foundational of all spiritual disciplines. And I think the most challenging of the spiritual disciplines. But it's also the easiest of the disciplines to start. Because you can start right now. God is present right here. Right now. So we just make ourselves aware of it. And also understand that you don't have to feel it or anything of the sort. It isn't necessarily about feeling anything. It's just being aware that you're surrounded by the presence of God. That's the discipline. It's that simple. As we do this, as you are aware of God's presence, what it does is that goes against our normal awareness. The normal of our awareness is programmed by the fallen culture, which is why the normal of our ordinary consciousness is such that we exclude God from our our awareness. We naturally just kind of think like the culture and feel like the culture and experience the world like the culture and therefore, of course, live like the culture. The Bible says that as a person thinks in his heart, so they are. So if we're going to make significant changes in how we live, we have to stay awake to God's presence. So I encourage you, here's your first assignment for today. Stay awake to God's presence. Try to stay awake for the rest of the message. Now I guarantee you'll forget in a minute, but that's okay. This is discipleship. This is practicing, not perfection. When you remember, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be aware of God's presence. Don't beat yourself up, just... Start doing it again. Try to integrate God into everything you do. Stay aware while you're going throughout your day. Offering blessing, praise, asking for advice. Talk to God, commune throughout the day. Cultivate the habit of blessing people. That's a great way of staying present to God. You're in the grocery store, bless the people that are there. You're driving on the road, bless the people who are there. Especially if they cut you off, bless them. Just be a blessing machine. The the normal mindset is is self-centered. But when you begin to be aware of God's presence, your your awareness expands to folks around you. And you can start to bless them. That's a kingdom thing. This is an exercise in the kingdom of God, weirdness. So the first discipline is the discipline of staying present with God. The second discipline is similar to to the first one in some ways, Um, it's a discipline of silence and solitude. We live in what economists are calling the <clears throat> attention economy. Literally, thousands of apps and devices are trying to distract you 24 7. You have people like Tristan Harris, who's a Silicon Valley insider who left the industry to start a nonprofit for the sole purpose of arguing for a Hippocratic oath for software designers because he's seen behind the curtain. Uh, and he's seen that right now everything is intentionally engineered by some twenty-somethings in San Francisco for distraction and addiction, because that's where the money is. Pretty much the only place left where we can have be alone with our thoughts anymore is in the shower. And now they made the Apple Watch waterproof. <laughs> it's like the beginning of the apocalypse at this point. Like we will never have an original creative thought ever again. Now, why does this matter? Because all of this distraction and addiction is robbing us of the core essential human ability to be present. To be present to other people, to be present with ourselves, and more than anything, with God. And in doing so, it's robbing us of our souls. As Ronald Roheiser put it, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Guess when he wrote that? 1999 before Facebook, before the smartphone. So the question is, is there a time-tested way of living that would set you and me up to thrive right in the middle of the, the chaos of modern society? And the answer is yes, absolutely. It's the peculiar practice of silence and solitude. And I'm going to talk more about this next week. But for today, let's start in Matthew chapter 3 and have a look at verse 13. Says then Jesus went from Galilee to the to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, It should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved son, who brings me great joy. Now look at this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. And the story goes on. Now, all I I want you to notice is that the first thing Jesus does after his baptism is he goes straight into the wilderness. Not sign up for a Twitter account, uh, not start a blog or hold a rally or event or preach to thousands upon thousands of people. First things first, straight to the wilderness. The word for wilderness in the Greek can be translated wilderness or desert, but it's also translated as deserted place, desolate place, solitary place, the quiet place, or the lonely place. And there are stories in all four Gospels, not just in Matthew, about Jesus' relationship to the solitary place. Turn over to Mark chapter 1. If you've read Mark before, you know that chapter 1 is essentially one long chapter about Jesus' first day on the job as Messiah. And it's, it's a marathon day, right? He's up early in the morning. He's at it all through the afternoon, well, into, well past sunset. We read about that in verse 34. Then in verse 35, we read this. Before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. Later, Simon and the others went out to find him. When they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. But Jesus replied, we must go on to other towns as well and I will preach to them too. That's why I came. So he traveled throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in his synagogues and casting out demons. Now you see a little pattern there. Jesus goes to the solitary place for 40 days. He comes back for one day on the job, and then goes back to the solitary place again. This silence and solitude was woven into the fabric of Jesus' everyday life. The more busy and popular and in-demand and famous that Jesus became, the more he withdrew to the lonely place to pray. Now, if you're anything like me, uh, when we get busy at work or in family or in a season of life, usually the first thing to go is silence and solitude. But the the solitary place was a regular part of Jesus' life rhythm. Like you read gospel after gospel, story after story, on a regular basis, he would sneak away to the, to the top of a mountain, uh, in the middle of the night, to a park outside Jerusalem, to a closet in the back of somebody's house, just to gather himself to God and to pray. And here's a working definition of silence and solitude to frame kind of next week's expanded teaching on this. It's intentional time in the silence to be alone with ourselves and God. Now, here's what we need to understand. There are two dimensions to silence in external and internal. External silence is when you go somewhere with no noise or as little noise as possible, no music in your headphones, no TV on in the background. It's when you're out in nature or you're up early in the morning in the quiet of your room or whatever, and it is quiet. And quiet all by itself, just that alone is kind of a spiritual discipline. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to read or pray or fast. Just quiet all by itself is kind of a spiritual discipline. The quiet does something to your soul. There's something about just not talking for a while. This may be the introvert in me, but I think we way overvalue talking in our modern world. And I talk for a living. I'm just saying, Proverbs says... What's it say? Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. And I love podcasts and TED Talks and just information, information, information. But I think we way undervalue silence. But as Strange Kingdom folks, we have to begin valuing the quiet. Because the quiet is healing and life-giving. So that's part of silence. But then there's also internal noise. The mental clutter. The the mind that just won't slow down, right? The fantasy, the revenge, the hate, the bitterness, the worry, the what-ifs. Silence in our context is what it is to both quiet the external and the internal noise. Then you have solitude. Solitude is a chosen separation for refining your soul. In silence and solitude, we slow down long enough to feel all the emotions that we've been running away from. In silence and solitude, we face the good and the bad. We face our desire, our hunger, our thirst for God, and we face our lack of desire for God. And our insecurities and our idolatries and our fantasies and everything that lies under the surface of our life. That nasty, weird motivation, the addiction that we've used just to make it throughout our work week, you know, all of it's exposed. But in a safe place with God, we get, we get the right perspective on our life. Now, when we're not getting enough silence and solitude, we feel distant from God. We just feel like there's this distance between us and God. And what happens is that we end up living off somebody else's spirituality through a podcast or a book or something. But not only that, we feel distant from ourselves. We lose sight of our identity, who we are in God and our calling from God. We lose the right perspective on life. We get stuck, we get sucked into the, the tyranny of the urgent, not the important. Henry Nouwen said, he said, without silence and solitude, it's virtually impossible to grow in the spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and listen to Him. I love it. He's so blunt, he, does, he doesn't beat around the bush. A lot of people are well-meaning and really want to follow Jesus, want to be transformed and be a disciple of Jesus, and that's great. But if you don't work silence and solitude into your practice of discipleship to Jesus, I don't know if it'll happen. We value the presence of God through silence and solitude. I'll end with this. There's a book called Thank You for Being Late by Thomas Friedman. Uh, great title. The subtitle is An Optimist's Guide to Thriving in an Age of Acceleration. And it's all about this conversation that we're having right now and ju- just the speed of the modern world. And he has this great quote in his intro from a CEO named Dov Seidman who says this. It's a little cheesy, but I think it's good. He said, when you press the pause button on a machine, it stops. When you press the pause button on human beings, they start. You start to reflect. You start to rethink your assumptions. You start to reimagine what is possible. Most importantly, you start to reconnect with your most deeply held beliefs. I, like many of you, um, grew up in a church tradition where we use this language all the time of a quiet time. I love that language. I think that's right out of the New Testament. But, you know, I've started to notice that I rarely, if ever, hear people talk about that anymore, the quiet time. If they do, it's kind of snarky or legalistic. I think being aware of God, being awake to his presence, having a quiet time with God, these are some of the most powerful ways of becoming a disciple of Jesus. To value the presence of God, we have to be in the presence of God. As we take the time and invite the Spirit of Jesus into our lives through our mindsets and our actions, he is faithful to come near to us. He is found as we seek him. We have to learn to pause and seek him. And I know that I'm an introvert, right? I know that I'm kind of a biased source because I love to be alone. I like to go walking in the woods and read and ponder and stare off into space and all that sort of thing. Um, I know a lot of you aren't wired that way. So this might be really hard for you or it might, might not, I don't know. But either way, it's worth it. The best things in life usually are. In the silence and solitude, in the pause to be aware that you're in the presence of God. In these ways that we slow down and live opposite of how the world is going, which is faster and faster. These are the places where Jesus and countless numbers of disciples down through human history have found life with God. And this is a place where you can find life with God. Amen. Um, can I ask the, the prayer team to come on forward? I'm going I'm to close in prayer. But I'll say this, if you're here and you have any need that you would like prayed for at all, whether it's physical or financial or spiritual, relational, emotional, anything, come forward and get prayed for with these folks. That's what they're here for. I'm going to send you out with this blessing. Father, give us the the boldness and the courage to live differently. We're all in process on this. We've got a long way to go. God, help us from feeling defeated because of where we're at, but rather encouraged about where you want us to be. God, I just pray that you would remind us to stay awake, remind us to say no to the normal of our life on a regular basis. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. Amen.